Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. Hello, everyone. I want to welcome everyone to our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting live Discord interactive podcast again, where we aim to cover the burning topics relating to all the threat hunting and security stuff you want to know about. So just a reminder, throughout the podcast, we'll be taking comments and questions from our Discord server. So if you want to participate, interact with some of the topics and things we have going on, make sure you sign up using the link in the welcome message. And Quick introductions. I'm Scott Poley. If you want to learn more about me and kind of my history, LinkedIn's a great place for that. And we also have Mike Lee. You guys can introduce yourselves. Lee, go ahead. No, same thing. Uh, Lee Arkenall. I've been here for about three years, threat hunting, having fun. Find more on my LinkedIn. And I'm Mike. Same thing. Find me on LinkedIn. Just glad to be surrounded by a great team of hunters. And uh, yeah, so let's get into it. So, just as everyone, if they don't know yet, every episode we do feature a cocktail recipe made by our team. So give it a try and leave feedback in the channel if you like it. It's the Crypto Cooler this time. I actually thoroughly enjoy it so far. So hopefully it's a good one all the way through. But let's just dive right in. We usually start with three interesting artifacts that each of us find that we want to talk about to kind of start off the discussion before discussing other types of topics based on our experience. So with that, Mike, I think you got the first topic. All righty. Yeah, so everybody's been talking about, you know, chat GPT. Uh, there's actually, I mean, it's it's starting to hit the, you know, pop culture. I think South Park did an amazing episode about it last week. <laughs> um, so it's, it's everywhere, right? And so I kind of want to talk about some of the potential security risks about implementation, right? About as you start to use it in your day-to-day, -day, we're already seeing, you know, kids, students, researchers use it uh, to build copy, to build documentation. Um, but we're now starting to see an inflection point where corporations are starting to bake it into their everyday process. And so there's a really interesting article. I posted an article from Metro, but it's basically warning security threats from ChatGPT and chatbots. So at a high level, basically, you know, when you submit something or use those models or use the API or use the the kind of the chat interface, and I'll I'll talk to it specifically on ChatGPT. That data is going somewhere, right? Uh, you have to basically input that data for that model to be able to return the values that you're expecting to return the kind of inference or, you know, if it asks you to summarize something and you, you give it some corporate documents, that data is going somewhere, right? And so as we started to research it, we looked into how the data was used. There are some interesting ways that you can opt out. And depending on how you interact with ChatGPT, you could potentially opt out of that data, you know, being pulled back into that model and that inference model. And so, uh, Scott Lee, have you used it yet? Just, just kind of curious at a high level on usage, and then talking about how it could be a potential problem over time. Just yeah, I'll hop in here. So, about. yeah, so I think this kind of stems from anything you use on the internet, as far as like if you're going to provide data, it's kind of just available. So, you know, I'm the kind of person that expects to have kind of data loss. You know, amongst that, like, I mean, I've even seen where engineers will share 
probably more information than they should on blogs to help them solve problems with engineering things, you know, or, you know, things like that. And so you, you can kind of crawl things like those types of forums to see the same thing. And the only thing with chat GPT and other chatbot type stuff, you can't really control where that is. You can't really remove what you've submitted. But in this case, you kind of can if you have a paid account. So um, one of the things that one of the guys on the team shared is if you have a paid account, you can actually opt out of all the conversation data you typically share won't go into the training model. And I think that's a great way for you know those chatbots to kind of maintain some of that. Obviously, if you're using the free, you can't control any of it, which I think that's kind of like the price for playing. So I think that's still kind of fair, um, but it's good to be aware of. I don't know if I'll share the the link for the opt out form if anyone's interested, but that's kind of like how I look at that. Like it, it is a risk. Like I remember I was reading about, uh, might've been a CEO, but he was trying to build a PowerPoint off of financial data. Yep. And so he wanted ChatGPT to help him build it. So he threw all this data into ChatGPT and I'm sure it laid it out how you'd want to put it in a PowerPoint, but that data's gone. Now, something that's really good about data is the, the older it is, usually it loses value over time, typically. So you kind of have that in your favor sometimes, but if the data is still can hold value over longer than a month or two months, it becomes higher risk, right? Yep. So uh, something to kind of consider when it comes to that. Yeah. Lee, have you played around put with the it? link? In. So honestly, mess with it like from a completely different angle. So I did have to write a research paper, and I'm not saying I use ChatGPT. I was that, ironically, <laughs> ironically, the, the the paper was to write or to justify upcoming or emerging technology and why a company should adopt it. And I was like, we've been talking about ChatGPT for weeks. I was like, that's gonna be an easy paper to write. So I did. And the the, the example I used was creating a uh, a query from Splunk, right? Like. I compared it to how much you have to learn from the documentation, trial and error, going through and trying to figure out your way out. Whereas if you could ask ChatGPT and say, hey, give me this, you know, it spits out real quick. Personal side, it was actually fun. Me and the kids played Dungeons and Dragons using ChatGPT. So like we were like, yeah, we were just like, you know, tell us the story and we went through. So no sensitive data, no like anything like right. that I can apply to. That's but um, yeah, I mean, that's what I would, and that's honestly like how I see it. It's not, I try to be careful about what I put in there, especially sure. because of the whole thing. But yeah, that's that's what I've done with it. Yeah, so- I feel like you created a very unique use of, I was gonna say like Dungeons and Dragons with Chad GPT. Like, that's awesome. You just created probably a whole new product just for that that statement alone, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was funny though, it was great. It's an awesome use of it. Yeah, so what's interesting is I'm starting to see Chad GPTs pop up in random products. like. <laughs> There's been a, yeah. a you know a tool that's popped up and it's like hey use ChatGPT for X Y Z and it's interesting because in that tool for the people that are using it you could exfil a lot of very important data right and of course you even if it's anonymized you can still infer a lot about that data if you put a couple of points together right data points together you kind of infer where it's coming from or what it's talking about so it'd be very interesting to see. And I would love to understand how they're protecting those models and that data, right? Imagine mm -hmm. a leak of ChatGPT's models with all those random organizations and uh, entities shipping data to it. it. It's a fire hose of probably very useful data, right? So I hope they're at least protecting it from a security standpoint. And one day we don't see some sort of exposure of that data model. And then Microsoft just announced their Copilot program that's basically a 
kind of machine learning AI kind of built-in capability that allows you to prompt it with documents and say, I need a summary of this document or this Word document, and then this maybe OneNote, and it will build a document for you. Um, but that data, again, is going somewhere, right? Uh, and it's probably a good segue into potentially that Microsoft vulnerability that we've been tracking. But it's, you know, it's just about securing that data, especially as you start shipping things to the cloud and understanding where that data is going and how it could potentially be harmful for you and your organization. And honestly, if you look back at, what was it, Cambridge Analytica? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Book stuff. Like they were collecting just like personal information and look what they did with it. Like look what they were able to do with that level of detail or information. This, if people are putting sensitive data in and just throwing numbers and possibly IP in there, I mean, God, like you can only imagine, right? Yeah, especially if you're able to tag the data coming in saying this is financial data and just, you know, redirect that into some sort of other bucket, all the yeah. other financial data that you're collecting. Yeah. This is personal identifier information or this is, you know, it's it's scary, right? And we don't know how they're they're using the data today and it could end up being another Cambridge Analytica where they might sell that off to somebody, right? And that could be used in a variety of different ways. Um, it, it's just kind of the wild west right now. <laughs> So it's, it's going to be fun to track this over time. Knowing that already, I mean, percentage do you think they're already doing it? Like, who do you think's already trying to find the data sets? Who's like, how do you feel about like 50-50, 75-25 that they are? Do you think I mean, they're overlooking it right well, now? I feel like, I, I feel like the one thing that uh, the data is not structured enough for someone to extract it without having something interpret it well enough. I think that's where it sits. So I feel comfortable with that. It'd be like a big cloud of confusion, but you know, it's still a data set and just takes time with any amounts of data. I mean, like, that's why there's organizations in the world that collect tons of data with not knowing what to do with it, just so they can have it when they figure out what to do with it. So, you know, it comes yep. down to like a data thing. I mean, I, it's a proven financial model. I mean, it's it's been proven time over time with the Facebooks, the Googles of the world, you know, data is, is kind of key to their monetary It's kind of like a new currency. Right? It is, it absolutely is. Like. Was it insurance companies make more money off your data than they do actually you paying for insurance? I mean, like that's that says something, right? Like right. that's a you know. So when people think about their privacy and the amount of data, like data is actually worth more than you know the dollar value. Mm-hmm. No, one hundred percent. Yeah, it's... if you're not paying for the product, it's because you are the product. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah. So. Again, it'll be fun to track this over time. I think one of the big things I think we're going to see, and we talked about it a little bit before, is the potential legality of what ChatGPT is returning because it is scraping the internet. And so you're going to see a lot of cease and desists. And that's what I worry about people putting it, just baking it into their platforms, because if that happens, ripping out something that you spent design dollars on and budget on to build into a product and having to rip that out because of legality issues, uh, you know, it could be very problematic in the future. All right. So if you're already how you rip that out. I mean, so that'd be a challenge for them. Yeah. It's basically removing a feature, right? That you're, you're kind of leveraging. So, Microsoft Copilot, right? I mean, I don't, their data sets are against ChatGPT's models and the data that it's collected to be able to infer and return those values. Now, if people put a kind of cease and desist on that data being available, where does it go from there, right? Have they collected enough data to make it successful ahead of that like legal 
action or is that something that's just going to kind of fade away and they have to retool and figure out how to move forward so it's going to be uh it's going to be fun to watch or you can just use it to respond to your wife or girlfriend like south park did <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers but it's, yeah. it was a great episode they do a good job yeah so lee i don't know if you want to jump over to yours yeah so i'm probably gonna pronounce this wrong but i think it's being lean or buying lion the ransomware, A N L I A N. Um, that that group, um, they have so back in the day when they first or when they were conducting some campaigns, Avast, the decode team, I believe it's the decode team, or sorry, the decrypted team. No, yeah, decoded Avast.io. Um, they found or they created a decryptor for. It. So they're like, hey, we're good. You know, like if you got hit with it, don't pay, or if you get hit with it, come to us. Well, these guys, they were like, well, you know what? forget that we're going to just straight up extort you so they've moved away from ransomware because you know in the ransomware world if you're you know if you're given the decryption key and it's not working you're not making money then that spreads right you're going to say oh just don't pay because they're not going to decrypt it anyways so you know your product's not working they just went full out and instead of doing the double extortion where they ransomware you and then say oh well we have your data anyways to pay more they're just going straight to say, to extortion, which I thought was interesting. I know the IBM vector or the, the paper that came out a while ago. I was reading up on that to see what it said on about the uh, about ransomware. And it was, you know, it was talking about different variants, and I don't think it or it didn't touch on a lot of money making. Uh, but it, it was just curious to see how how the ransomware came out, how an organization said, you know what. We found a decryption key or we figured it out, you know, we fit, you know, and they just moved. They're like, you know, all right, whatever. Like you may have got us. We're not going to put that much time and money into creating a new encryptor because if that's the case and another organization finds it, you know, they provide that for free again, then we're out of money. So what's the best way forward for us to do it? And that's just extortion, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. But what were your thoughts? Yeah. So you know, it's interesting because you kind of brought up the most obvious point that I wasn't thinking, but when they said they were relying more on extortion, I was thinking, oh, people are getting better at backing up their data. So the encryption thing isn't working as well anymore. So you fall back on what are other ways to make money? Obviously, it makes sense. If there is a decryptor, then obviously you're not going to rely on the encryption either. <laughs> so that's probably the obvious answer. I was giving people more credit than they probably do. Maybe. Um, but something I always think is interesting when people come up with decryptors, that, and I'm assuming I'm right on this. I've seen some proof of this, but I haven't really dug into every you know security firm that comes up with a decryptor. But usually they solve the problem either because they're not really doing a good job randomizing keys, or they figured out how they generate those keys so they can replicate that process. Like they take some unique thing from the type of endpoint or something like that to help, mm -hmm. you know, seed the key. It's usually not like a break of the encryption if they're using standard vetted encryption. And that's something I think people need to understand too when it comes to encryption. Most of the time, even as attackers beat encryption, is never a direct attack, right? It's like a, hey, we figured out how to side channel this. We figured out how to get in front of this in some way. Uh, so it's it's kind of like an it's more of the process I guess I should say for how they you know attack those things. But I did look at their initial um, write up when they talked about like their behaviors and stuff like that, and they they did some like sample they call them LOL commands, which kind of made me laugh because of the LOL bins, but they're LOL. Um, so they did some of the, the net exe type enumeration stuff, which we commonly see amongst all ransomware groups. I like to call that out because I feel like all ransom groups kind of wear the same skill sets. 
I know like their end result may be slightly different, but I feel like the way they live is the same. But the one thing I did see, and I don't know if you've seen this, Lee, and I'm only picking on you because you did a lot of UAC type stuff, but they did interact with the registry key for the allow to get help, which just sounds like the perfect red, you know, UAC bypass type technique. So that was listed in their report as well, uh, where that it looks like they maybe have like enabled that. They didn't really put anything unique in that key. So it was kind of like, a, oh, so that allowed to get help, usually those like convenient type functions in a system you can leverage for things. It looks like that's what they did. But yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting. And, you know, you see kind of a similar uh, approaches other ransomware groups typically use. And I think, you know, I always harp on this, but like I said, I think they all kind of behave the same. And I think if we learn that, we'll be better at defending against that. So it's good to check out their initial report. I guess I'm leading to that. I'll share the link. I mean, there is a reason yeah. that the time frame is now less than four days versus what it used to be two months. I mean, they all learned yeah. those all those techniques. Uh, and, you know, they figure out, and I'm sure they talk just because they're criminals doesn't mean they don't talk to each other, but if they can say, hey, look, you know, this is what we're doing. We've been able to ransom in three days versus two months. And I mean, why not? Because it's a really well, smash and grab, right? What do you, uh, yeah, what I think do you it's attribute also... to that delta? And that change in time outside of you know not doing the full encryption or a lot of times you have those advanced persistent threats that really want to sit and wait get their foothold and then you know try to go after these organizations so is it just because people are paying so why wait at this point or what do you attribute to yeah that? I, I mean their business model is very specific and they're they're not like i would say the more advanced persistent threat wants to be able to sit there even if they do specific actions on objective, they want to maintain that access. Mm -hmm. And ransomware groups, I feel like once they've you know gotten the data and been able to launch their you know encryption campaign across the network as best they can, they've kind of announced themselves. So they don't expect to persist. Um, if they do, I'm sure they'll do more you know conniving things. But I think that just shortens the dwell time. They figured out like it's almost like an SOP for we get in. We just need to we just need to work really hard to get to this point, which you know in most cases maybe DA, but maybe not. Maybe they can just get to something that gives them enough administrative privileges to just start detonating things across to create enough havoc, and that's kind of their their thing. And so it shortens that time window a lot because it's easy to achieve that, which is kind of scary because you think about if the ransomware groups can get that level of access in that short period of time, that means an advanced attacker, unless they want to move slow, can probably get that access just as fast. They just don't do anything with it. Right. Right. So, um, and but I was going to say, one of the reasons why I think they share a lot of the same TTPs is because it's like that, um, that kind of ruffian type of hacker group where I feel like they're there to make money and, if they don't like the people they work with or they have a fallout, they just ban frequently or, you know, they get shut down maybe, right? And then they just kind of get absorbed into these other groups. So I feel like it's a lot of the same people and it kind of carries those fingerprints with them as far as behaviors. And then they're like, oh, well, I do this. This works really well. And I've already wrote how to do this. So use this. So you have these inexperienced people picking up on the same techniques as the experienced people. And there's a lot of information being shared that way, I feel like. So. And so your point and i think lee you made this as well is like you're not seeing novel techniques and tactics in in ways these guys are getting in this is kind of like the tried and true you know easy button almost for these guys to to jump in and, and yeah. uh, you know uh, manipulate the situation so the the other thing is that shortened time frame 
what I initially think is that that's probably a less mature organization that they're uh, that they're infecting or trying to ransom. I don't know if the article talked about the the size of the org or the complexity and maturity of that organization um, based on that time frame, but you know, you see a note on a machine that says you've been ransomed, pay within four days. We have your data. I would assume that a less mature organization, unless they understand how to look for the visibility, um, they're not engaging in a IR team because they don't have the time. Um, do they know how to go and look for, oh, we've had data expo over the past six days. At, you know, they've touched all of these files and exfilled all of these files. Typically, there's not a, you know, they call it proof of life where you like, you know, talk to the hostage or here's some of your data that we've exfilled. Are they just kind of taking them on their word and saying, oh, crap, let's pay. They don't have the time to go do those IR processes to even check if they actually have the data. They might just have access to a particular machine, drop that ransom note and, you know. Yeah, uh, and sometimes I've seen too where these adversaries will share something and sometimes might not be like as telling. So we were even just talking about like the ring thing with ransomware, right? Yeah. Where like they were like, we got ring. And then it came out like you were mentioning earlier that it might have been like a contractor that it had some ring type stuff. So mm -hmm. they post some things and like if people have the time to be like, oh, well, there's no evidence of you on our network. And the stuff you have, we know that we don't control and it's shared elsewhere and other people could have it. You know, that's something too, I wonder like how organizations, because the time's ticking, right? And that's not easy, unless you have like the perfect tools in place and the right processes in place, it's not easy to tell what everyone's touched necessarily. So yeah, it's yeah. a good question. Yeah, I mean, they don't so, have that like particular set of skills to go out and, and find that person or find the bad, right? They don't have a Liam Neeson right. to, to go track it down. Yeah. <laughs> so looking at the report, the IBM report says in 2022, Xforce also observed more aggressive ransomware attacks on underlying infrastructure, such as ESXi and Hyper-V. The potentially high yeah. impact attacks methods underscores importance of securing domain controllers and hypervisors properly. So if they were targeting those more than the standard operation, then I mean, that would, that would reduce the amount of time they would need to spend there, correct? If you're, attacking, if you're attacking like a Horizon, which is a VDI solution or ESXi, I mean, you have the keys to the kingdom if you get root access to those. Like, you can just turn for large off root of yeah. You might not need to even exfil the data. I mean, there's ways that you could stop the access by, you know, changing some networking, some firewalling, some account, you know, credentials, kind of looking through to see if they've created additional accounts to kind of sideload and get access. But again, there's a complexity and a methodology and maturity around being able to actually go find those things, right? If you're a two-man mm -hmm. IT shop, but you're a decent, small to medium, you know, organization, and you see that note, you're probably going to pay, right? And it's smart to say you have four days because to engage an IR team, to get the contract, to get people access and on-site, and to work through that takes longer than four days if you don't have it in-house. In so something to note about the ESXi stuff. Yeah, I've developed some things for those, but as I've looked at all the different approaches to these different groups that have targeted ESXi, they all kind of fall back on the same tried and true first way it happened. And then they kind of like tweak that a little bit, but they have some of the core ways in which they shut down services in which they execute certain commands. So like I said, it's kind of funny how maybe there's only a certain ways for you to do this with the type of access you'd have so the attackers follow the same path or 
they're just you know doing the same thing they find the samples that we seem to find do the same thing learn from them and then basically do the same techniques but there is very common commonly shared techniques attacking the esxi infrastructure for sure yeah so i'd be curious to see and i should probably show dan how many people expose the esxi to the internet which would be a kind of a weird move <laughs> i guess unless you need that VI yeah lot for shell showed some of that right yeah yeah absolutely so it, it was a it's always scary jumping into Shodan and punching in a port or a service and seeing how many servers are actually on the internet that don't need to be. It's always, a, I mean, that's a handy land for these guys, right? That'd be the first step, right? Let's go see what's on the internet. Let's check it out. And then you can yeah. map that to the vulnerability of the exploit. And we always talk about kind of eating our own dog food. But as an organization, I would jump online the port through the service and see if my IP address space pops up, right? Run those type of internal external scans on yourself. And that'd be the first step to potentially stop that kind of exploitation, right? I think let's bring up a really good point. And I feel like when I've worked in security, a lot of people kind of shy away from this, but you know, like no one wants to create detections or hunt for, Hey, we were reconned, right? Like, Oh, look, people are hitting us from the internet. Like it's like kind of a waste of time, mm -hmm. so to speak. But what really is a good approach is why don't you use the same recon tools that people are using against yourself and see what you find so you at least know what's exposed. I think that's the better approach that you get way more value from, right? Not relying on, um, you know, trying to see, oh, well, someone, someone just scanned us with a tool. Look at the user agents on this. They just scanned our server with that. It's like, cool. Well, you know, the server is publicly exposed, so you should expect that, yep. you know, and then, so that's, that's like kind of, I think the better approach for it. Yeah, and typically those tools are not complex. They're they're no, pretty no. easy to run and deploy and understand the results that come back. So that would be the first thing I would do from a cadence perspective is have those reports on a daily basis, right? Um, talking about good standard practices or good SOP around kind of security and those day-to-day -day things, that should mm -hmm. be top priority and then you work your way down, right? It's almost, again, kind of lined up with the MITRE techniques and tactics, recon, and you go into initial access, and you kind of work down the line. And that's, and we always get asked the question, where should we start from a threatening perspective? And while we typically don't try to write hunt for reconnaissance, because it's, again, pretty easy methodology to deploy, but it's really just kind of stepping through that process, hunting kind of tied to those tactics, gets you kind of a really good place to start. Yeah, the question, the answer so, to that is always like, well, yeah. what scares you the most? What are you most worried about? You know, that's where you should start hunting. Is it exfil? Is it you know, persistence? Whatever the case may be. But especially with the Shodan stuff, if you're in a conversation, someone says, well, that port should never be exposed to the internet. That's normally a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, so right. something else that I thought was hugely valuable, and that I can't remember the specific lab site that had like a better way to report this, but have you guys ever heard of DNS Twister? It sounds familiar. So, all right. The DNS Twister is basically where you can take the domains that you own, you could put it in there, and it will give give you every single like typo squatted way you can do that domain. Mm -hmm. So how people can fake your domain through many different techniques, right? Like either like shifting it by one letter, using letters that are similar or whatever. So it'll give you a huge list of everything that someone can use from like a phishing pers perspective. But I think the newer version also tells you if any of those are registered. So now you can even say, hey, we've got all these domains that someone can potentially use, which you can just almost straight put in a block list because most of them either don't exist. And if they're registered, they're probably either parked or right. going to be planned to use maliciously. 
but it was it was a great approach to like uh, kind of like that proactive recon like hey what is out there that is closely resembles us that someone can use sure. against us kind of thing and there's another site i'd have to dig in to try and find it but it actually did the full report of those types of things as well but it's a really really strong tool and i think it's a great place to start for some of those things i mean if you're at google.com like buy all of those domains <laughs> if you really care about security, <laughs> like buy all of them you have the money right like it's a really yeah. good post to, uh, i don't know so why are you talking I just about block it <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> the tool I put right under what you were talking about, Bully, that's actually something I mm -hmm. found whenever I first, uh, actually when we first started First Energy, me and another analyst were sitting up night watching Black Hat videos, right? I think it was like Black Hat 19. Yeah. They came up with Enamol, a uh, power, or no, Python script that you put in your domain, I think it was domain or IP address, and it would go through the internet and find all the different servers, uh, like using FTP, you know, anything that was not top level, anything associated with your organization, there's any modifications, it would find it and just listed it out there. So that's a way that you could take a look at, you know, what do we already have that's possibly vulnerable? It was really, it was actually a really interesting find. It kind of goes so, into the sanitation of orgs, right? So you might have a marketing team spins up a info at or info dot or KB dot or you know, starting to build subdomains against your main domain that you might not know are out there, right? So it just kind of goes into that sanitation of kind of your org. Go ahead, Scott, sorry. Yeah, as I say, I don't know how to pronounce the name because it's all underscores, but Jay from uh, Discord was talking about you know, alerts, you know, that he's talking about vendors doing certain alerts. And I remember it made me think of, remember Google alerting? Did you guys ever use that? Yeah, I got you know it what I'm talking all. about? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, but they changed the service. I don't know if it works the same, but I did go through a cool course with Route 9B way back in the day. And one of the things that they brought up, which I thought was a cool idea, was they would set up Google alerting for all the different types of pastebin sites. And uh, they would put like the company domain in there, right? So there was ever a dump that was associated from anything that had people's emails or references, their usernames type of thing. You would get alerted and know that, hey, someone's creds might have been popped from this other place or something like that and it was a and you know you can set up an email alerts and you can figure out how to bring that in if you want to automate yeah. and do some things with that but it was also so, i mean those types of tools are really cool but yeah but yeah i think pastebin's api changed because we were using it early on to kind of do some intel gathering and i know they changed some of how they allow access to kind of scrape pastebin so that could have been why there was that change in the alerting well that's what was cool about uh the google alerts you just give them the domain and they use their auto crawler to see those things versus like interacting with the site specifically. Yep. yep. Like most people, but yeah. So. Cool. Cool. We, uh, we pivoted hard off the original topic, but I love it. Yeah. No, it was, it was good. <laughs> it was good. Made yeah. me like reminisce about cool things that I've forgotten about. So, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll jump into the next topic and this, uh, really, I kind of want to talk about kind of why threat hunting is such a powerful thing and something that always gets forgotten. So this really, um, kind of is a call to the recent Microsoft exploit vulnerability, right? Where you get like a calendar invite, it's got specific fields that have UNC pass that force an SMB call out. So that your NTLM hash is being shared that it can be then, you know, potentially brute force broken rainbow table, whatever. And you can lose creds that way, right? Uh, and it was associated with Russia and obviously Russia, 
proof that they were using this by all through 2022. I don't know if in early 2023, obviously vulnerabilities still exist, so they could be. But when it comes to like really good threat intel and threat hunting, like if you look first off, SMB leaving the organization, most security professionals know it's not a good idea, right? As long as you can determine what is your organization and what isn't. Usually it's the private IP address space. We had some funny stories earlier talking about how Sometimes you don't control what IP space your engineers, network engineers want to use. That's neither here or there. Uh, but this whole idea of forcing someone to try to, you know, share credentials or authenticate outside your network was discovered back in 1997. Ooh. Right, right. A long time ago. So this this concept, and obviously there's a minor technique, so, you know, they had things about it, but 1997. So this idea of, of oh, and it was really scary back then. I think they were using... You know, taking advantage of Internet Explorer to do those types of things. Well, not Clippy. 1997, when I worked, what's that? It was, it was all Clippy. Did not Clippy. <laughs> <laughs> no, not Clippy. So, so I'll share that little little nugget there, and where I, where I was reading about that before I pivot to the next thing. So, what's interesting about this is in working for the energy company, right? We were obviously, and I forgot the age on my copy. I'll try to edit that if I can. I was working for an energy company and sure enough, Russia interested in US energy stuff had a huge campaign and they're really interested in trying to figure out how to get you to do the same type of technique. So they cared about SMB. They wanted you to basically interact and communicate with them or wherever their servers were, the SMB. Uh, and the thing about that was they had three um, other novel ways to do that. And this was in like 2015, I think it went back to, and then they had some activity then in 2017, it really ramped up. So we're talking, you know, almost 10 year span, still similar techniques. Um, and then you get to, in the stuff in 2015 to 2017, they had spear phishing emails. And what they basically were doing were sharing a Word document that was looking to pull down a dot, a DOTM called .m template which from an SMB server. So you can basically tell Word to say, hey, there's a template for this file, go fetch it. So the same activity was being generated, right? You pull this down, second you open the document, SMB communication out. But not only that, one of the other ways they also were trying to leverage this was they actually were using watering holes. They had compromised sites that people commonly go to, and they were putting basically a one pixel image file that when you load the site, it would then call out SMB because that's where it was saying it was stored. So they would do that as you hit the site. And we were actually seeing activity of this. Um, and we actually worked with the FBI to help them you know, root out some additional sites, which is really cool. We'll give a shout out to Chris Collins, one of my other analysts who actually discovered a lot of this. But uh, so here's the, I was gonna share the phishing email stuff, but let me get to the text so that I can actually share the text. So you can see that, but the, the call out from the, the site was, you know, pretty novel and easy. I mean, wouldn't think anything of it if you were looking at the site unless you knew this was a technique. Um, but there's the spear phishing, the watering hole. Like I said, it was like image source equals file colon slash slash, and it had an IP address, and then try to pull that out. I'll show the sample of that in Discord, so you can see that as well. But then another thing that was interesting. So talk about obsession with SMB, right? Russia seems to really like this technique. So if you know how SMB is being utilized, I'm getting duplicated text warnings from our bot. That's okay. You're warned for but, the, uh, the input. <laughs> oh. <you> <laughs> right. 
so so yeah there's the sample of what was actually found on the site you see the image source file so you know it's something to look for if you're actually curious but they also used lnk files shortcut links so this was an interesting way to stay persistent so when they would create an lnk file you can actually icon for those lnk files you can have something to load the icon from a file share so what they did was they dropped in wherever this icon was for this lnk file so every time you pulled up a directory with that LNK in it, so if it was sitting on your desktop, it worked all the time, it would just constantly call out. So you'd be sharing SMB or NTML hash constantly. And that was a persistent way to collect these things. So they did all three of these techniques to focus on the same type of technique this current exploit is doing. Um, and this is like 2015 to 2017. Um, so why I bring that up is, gosh, I think it makes so much sense to be profiling how SMB is being used in an environment. It's an example of that, like, you know, we could, we can come up with a perfect way to say, ooh, we, we found an LNK and it's associated with this SMB call out or it's really weird, or we, we found this phishing thing, but you can see there's many different ways to cause that behavior versus if you focus on just the behavior, you might find all these things kind of working backwards, but you know that something suspicious has already gone on. And so there's advantages to both, but I feel like that's, that's kind of the point I'm trying to drive out here. Can you give a couple examples of when SMB is like normal activity or normalized real quick, just to kind of talk through that and why this is kind of scary? From a, yeah, from a so SMB should, should never leave your network. <laughs> um, there, sure, there's some edge cases, so I can't ever really say never. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's usually if you're interacting with file shares, it's a perfect place for that. If you're interacting with your DC, it's also a perfect place for that. So those are the type of communication you see. Should be questioning when you see SMB between workstation to workstation, because a lot of times that's associated with lateral movement. So internally, you can you can profile that too, right? Like where's SMB going? How often is it commonly going between workstations? And something else to note is, you know, 445 is the standard port for SMB, but you can get SMB traffic over kind of the legacy 139, the NetBIOS protocol stuff. Um, but but that's where so you would expect would be, to see it. Typically, right. the 139 would be the unencrypted. The 445 would probably be the kind of the encrypted traffic protocol. Yeah, where you use like version two, version three. I think yeah. there's multiple versions, and I, I I do believe the encryptions and how those are protected or are based on the versioning. It's been a while since I've actually looked at the protocols, sure. but and that connection yeah, you, you shouldn't see SMB leave. Yeah, and that connection out would typically have the LTM LTLM hash. NTLM. NTL, sorry, NTLM hash associated with it, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So, so you know, it's interesting. I'm copying from all the wrong places when I'm trying to share this. So, what's interesting, right, is if you're say you're you're you think your threat is Russia, and you've seen over at least a decade where they continue to revisit this technique. This is something you should be hunting for, and maybe have some detections around. And like like I said, there's obviously multiple ways they found out how to cause this to occur. So detections aren't, I wouldn't say your, your one-stop shop, but maybe if you understand some of these techniques, you can build detections for those specifically, because honestly, knowing exactly what happened speeds up response, right? But if you, if you can't build those into detections, or you know, you're looking for 
potential future uh, exploitations of this type of technique, that's where hunting comes into play, right? Where you can overlap hunting detections to say, yeah, if we know exactly what it is, perfect, we respond to it appropriately, we know how to handle it versus now you see this behavior, you hunted for it, you've profiled your network, you know what it looks like, and now you can then say, ooh, this might be some new novel thing we don't know about, but you knew you were hit by it. So you might be the first to discover it, or uh, you might be able to then, if you know something's wrong with a box, maybe you think something's wrong, but you can afford to wait and watch further. You can learn about additional techniques they might try in your environment, which will then help you even kick them out further and keep them out longer, you know, kind of thing. So I think those are all, you know, really valuable to note, right? I keep trying to post in the Windows leash sharing versus my own. I'm like, why is this not working? Yeah, but okay. you know, that being go ahead. Ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna I was gonna talk about so that was and brings up another good point. I think we have a blog and one of our guys should probably share it, but when we're looking at this exploit, one of the things that was really interesting is we all kind of came to the same hypothesis um, as far as what you expect to see. And what was interesting was it didn't actually occur according to our hypothesis. And that's why I think validation when it comes to threat hunting is really important. If you can validate it, I and mean, sometimes it's really hard and you might not have the skills and you just got to go with what you know. But validating this one specifically, we learned a lot of things that were different than how a majority of the uh, security professionals were hypothesizing this would look from a data perspective. So yeah, you know, you can check out our blog there, get some insights into that. But it was kind of, a, it was a stressful time because, you know, when something doesn't work and you beat your head against the wall forever and then it finally works and you can do something with it, you know, that's rewarding, but it does take some energy away from you. But definitely check that out because it definitely pertains to what we're talking about as well. Yeah, but yeah, Lee, I just sent, you guys. Yeah, I just, Lee, I just sent you an article from Microsoft around best practices for SMB. And so I, you know, I did a quick look on kind of best practices for firewall and perimeter firewall approaches. It's interesting, they talked a lot about inbound SMB. And they said that it had been, at least Windows Firewall, it's blocked by default inbound since Windows XP. And then I started reading outbound, uh, and I didn't see that being kind of natively blocked using the Windows Defender Firewall or just basic Windows Firewall. But of course, there's standard practices of operations, right? SOPs around firewalls and networks. I'm sure there's plenty of network engineers out there that would, you know, hopefully have this kind of in place, but it's it's always good to kind of track some of these exploits and these capabilities. I mean, there might be a use case for you to have SMB out, but of course you then probably want to have very specific inclusions on the IP addresses or domains or hosts or where that traffic is going. But yeah. Scott, to your point, I mean, this should be, off of kind of the initial indication, this should be a very easy detection to put in place. Notify me okay. or let me let me let me see a graph or a visualization of all outbound SMB traffic across my work. And that's that's the first place to start, right? Oh I was gonna say liked I'm gonna say his name again or their hey. name. I don't know who they are. Jay with underscore. Uh, uh, his question was, I noticed a lot of malicious activity attributed to actors from a particular country. Is it easy to spoof where the traffic is from? And how do you know it's from the same actors coming from different places? It's a great question. And it's interesting because as you follow certain threat actors, some like to hide more than others. Um, so I mentioned Russia and I've just followed a lot of things about Russia 
based on where I've worked and them being a threat and and so forth. And like for instance, their profile is they either like to compromise third-party companies and come from them. So they kind of like the smaller smaller people on the totem pole to attack the bigger people, or they just come from Russia, ironically. And I was actually I talked to a former CIA operative who his specialty was Russia, and he kind of said that they're um I wouldn't use the term wild, but they kind of don't care, right? If it gets associated back. So, you know, that that's something that is a, a characteristic of personality that you can kind of attribute versus there's some actors like I feel like China usually tries to be a little more stealthy. Obviously, North Korea has to be because they only have an IP block of like so many IP addresses. So they have to come from somewhere else. So kind of understanding adversaries over a period of time, I think, helps. Not to say that they can't come from anywhere, right? Like we, I remember we used to do geo blocking as a control. It's not really, I would say, a control because you'll force them to come from somewhere else, if anything. But it does reduce a lot of noise potentially from specific botnets and the standard kind of automated approaches to to offensive security. But but yeah, no, it's it's a good thing to be thinking about as far as attribution. I usually don't care about attribution until it's blatantly obvious and then it's like oh okay this like everything i've seen is fingerprinted and i can pick between two or three adversaries of who it is so i start to use that for like maybe predictive defenses like okay have we seen these other things yet so i can then pivot to say well i want to look for these other things or anything that new that comes out with their tag i'll look for those things too i might not turn anything up but it just helps me prioritize my time i guess more anything else yeah yeah absolutely the uh the I guess the kind of the personality of let's call it a Russia campaign or an actor, right? And to your point, they don't care. I mean, there's there's attribution, there's understanding where it's coming from, but you know, are there any, you know, is there blowback from them doing that over there, right? There's not typically operations where we can go arrest those people yeah. in Russia or, you know, there's no consequences to their actions. So who cares if you see an IP address coming from Russia, they have a way larger IP block. So block that IP, that's fine. I'm just going to move to another one and another one and another one or VPN somewhere else, right? So there's really no risk in them kind of showing their cards outside of... Yeah, you, you bring to... a... Oh, good. I say you bring up a good point when it comes to blowback. I feel like if there's loss of life or such a significant financial impact um like for instance you know the pipeline when that was ransomware and like how it affected the economy and also resources the government wanted to step in and do something about that Mm -hmm. because it was that big but if people can just oh i got access to your network and i have all your data what's the blowback people are like protect your network better you know that's typically what happens right so it's like uh, that's why i mean that's why you're not seeing this happen against i mean you do see it against critical infrastructure like the pipeline. Those are probably individuals that if a bad actor had their way, if we're talking nation state, they would probably slap them on the wrist and be like, hey, stop bringing so much attention to us at this point. Like go after the little guys. There's no blowback, right? There's, There's hardly any blowback of these organizations ransoming or encrypting these smaller businesses and financial institutions. So it's interesting. I want to say, I don't know who it was, but they're trying to basically say, what is the state of cyber warfare? And like, everybody's waiting for this cataclysmic event to say, ooh, cyber warfare started now. And it's like, oh, everyone's just attacking and shutting things down. 
And it's like, well, what's happened is we've been become so desensitized. Like over the years, it's just been this gradual increase to mm-hmm. where like, oh, I got to, you know, I get fished at home. Or I get fished on personal email. You're like, oh, whatever. Even though it might be tied to someone who's really trying to like encrypt everything and steal things from me and do these really awful things or steal my identity. And I just slap it on like, oh, it's another one, right? We're so desensitized. So for anyone to really have a strong response, it would be really, really hard, right? But like cyber war is going on. I mean, it's it's a pretty active game that people probably don't realize. But like I said, we're all kind of desensitized to the impact to our personal lives for the most part. Yeah. Would you uh, say the cause of that is all the cybersecurity awareness training we have to deal with? Bob and yeah, so get rid of that now. <laughs> Make it scary. VR, zombies, yeah. But it's, I mean, and y'all have been, we'll call it the front lines of protecting organizations. I haven't had to sit seat of an analyst or a responder or a hunter, but the effects are felt across the industry for sure, right? The burden is on the analysts and, the, and, and those, those teams that are trying to protect these organizations getting hit every single day, right? There is an impact. Like two years, so, most for an analyst but, before they turn yeah. over. I was going to say the thing that is probably the, a terrible way to look at it, but I, sitting as an analyst, was always more afraid of my management than I was the adversary, right? Like, I didn't want to mess up and have something bad happen, not not because I was worried what the adversary would do, but because I'd be like, oh, man, they're going to get me because I didn't do my job, which maybe isn't necessarily the right approach for what you're really trying to do, but that's the reality of it. Yeah. And Lee, I think you mentioned that the last podcast that we did, the live around you were talking about being a manager and like feeling like you were kind of underwater on all the things you had to to deal with. But, you know, in your experience, have, have you felt that that burden, right? That carrying kind of the weight of the organization on your shoulders? That was definitely Pulley. He was my supervisor. I was, oh, okay. <laughs> I was the guy causing the feeling. I was making sure I was like, hey, is your plate clear? Yeah, now there's some stuff. I was like, well, I got this for you. <laughs> Oh my bad. I thought you. I thought you had mentioned that you. You kind of stepped into a role that you were. You were managing or whatever. Oh, no, you were like yeah. a lead, right? You were a lead. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that much trauma. You forgot. <laughs> try to block it out. Exactly. <laughs> it's clearly working until now. Uh, <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. This was supposed to be therapy. But no, no, you're right. Yeah, like I do remember the pressure of not just like, not just like we're getting attacked, but like the whole. Are we following proper processes and procedures? Or, you know, we have an audit coming up. Do we have the evidence that we need? Do we have all this stuff that we need ready to go to get like a check? Because one, you have a defender coming in. It's like, are we defending our network? Are we finding the stuff that we're looking for? Are we doing our jobs there? Okay, if we're keeping them out, what about the auditors? Like a big security audit, if we fail that, you know, that's big consequences for the organization. And then if we don't do our job on that end, you know, that could, which one's more catastrophic, right? Fail an audit or get a bunch of, you know, leak or breaches or, you know, it's murdering, but yeah, that would, thanks, Mike. Sorry. But you can do, you can be doing <laughs> literally everything right, everything yeah. right that you're supposed to be doing and still get breached, right? Because you're going to have that yeah. one unknown unknown, that thing that pops up, like this SMB. Which we call people that you don't control. <laughs> yeah, right? And, and then it's, why didn't you protect us against this? And it's kind of all pinpointed down to those SOC teams and those analysts, right? So, or the manager, right? But it, it's, a, it's a hard problem to solve, right? It's like... So, the, yeah. I think I think that you bring a good point 
I think the approach, and this is really more for management, isn't focused on like, why did things fail? It's A, how do we respond? And what were the lessons learned and how we'd apply those? Like those two things you can walk away with is success every time. If you're always focusing on those failures, right? That some people do harp on like, oh, we got breached or this happened or this happened. It's like, those are going to happen and you should actually expect them to happen so that you're prepared to do those other two things really well. So in containment, because if something does happen, how did you contain it? It's that response. What did you do? Right. Is it, I mean, you know, call it a forest fire, right? Like if you're, if you're watching, if you're at that fire watchtower and you're looking down and something happens, that forest fire happens, how quickly can you respond and react and contain that fire? Like a fire is going to happen. It's really that response and that containment, right? Matters over time. Um, so yeah, anyway, I, I, that's off to y'all, right? I was just an engineer. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, part of it, part of the burden was on us, but it's really those guys, the analysts that, you know, have to deal with it on a day to day. Well, you learn a lot. You learn a lot. <laughs> yeah. Trial by fire for sure, but it's good. I think, um, and so typically now we'll go into some higher level topics. Yeah. I know I was first up on the list, but I'd like to actually throw it over to Lee because I think this kind of ties into the discussion we've been having today. Lee and then you, Scott, as well. And maybe we can talk about those two topics because I think it kind of blends seamlessly into the, the conversation we've been having today. Which one do you want to touch on first? It sounds like you want to touch on mistakes first. Let's do that one, right? That's a that's a good kind of goal. And, and then we can talk about how do you fix those mistakes, but then also work together to build a cohesive team, right? So I think those two topics, and then we have about 30 minutes left. Okay. So, yeah, yeah I'll, ju I'll jump in. So something I think, you know, in past podcasts, we talked about imposter syndrome. So I felt like this was also fitting because we've worked in the field long enough and we're not perfect by any means, right? So like we want to, at least I want to talk and I want to see what mistakes you guys made, but what are some mistakes you have made either in an instant response or investigations or anything that, you know, was kind of, I would say detrimental, but, you know, something that it went awry and what was kind of like your takeaway? What would you learn? What'd you do? Like, what was the scenario? How'd you fail? Lee, how'd you fail? We're just really diving in today. <laughs> you got your tissue box close by, right? right. It's an session. <sighs> How much time we got? So the idea, I mean, so I failed a lot. And fortunately, I did so. Because, I mean, it was there's always those things out there, but I failed so much that I had to learn. I had to figure out where I messed up. I had to like retrospectively look at myself and say, well, what, what should I have done better? Um, I, I'm pretty sure back in the day, finding false positives was like a big thing, right? You're like, oh yeah, I found, you know, I have false positives. So then you see the same alert over and over. And like, who's that alert fatigue, right? You're just like, oh, yeah, brute force, know. brute force, brute force, the same person over and over. And you're just like, disregard that. And then come to find out, it's like, well, that was either a pen test or that was like actually someone trying to get like legitimate brute force. And I'm like, oh crap. Like, and then like, well, whose, <laughs> whose ticket was this? And it's, it's mine. Uh, and, you know, I, not doing the due diligence and letting that fatigue kick in. Uh, knowing what I know now, um, how to like pivot through data, how to actually run an investigation uh, from that set of this side of things is completely opened my eyes to looking back at like, man, like I was just, you know, drink from fire hose. Uh, I would say versioning, uh, not checking up the uh, uh, the update or keeping software updated. Uh, if you were around last time, we talked about Syspawn and how I was using an outdated version. 
and it took down some, or like, we just took down some computers. Like, and unfortunately that was a, a critical feature at the time. Um, so we had some computers down. The only way to fix it was to go actually go in and re-image them and just like stand back. A text had to go there. So, you know, there's some mistakes that I've made that I learned from. Um, Can you- and even here, when I'm investigating some research, like, <laughs> I've been, Alex let me know. Back when I first started, I was like, oh man, I was like, I can't find this registry. I can't find this registry. So I went in and just turned on auditing, like on this whole <laughs> And like, and like, Alex was like, dude, your VM is spiking. What's going on? <laughs> what are you doing? I'm like, I'm not even at my computer. I was like, what are you talking about? I like come to find out, I was like, okay, you know, maybe I should have reverted, like not kept that chain. But it was just, you know, that the fr- once again, it's that frustration of, man, I need to find this. I know what I'm looking for. Where is it? Uh, you know, and now I know to be a little more selective. Um, can, I, can I share a story of yours? What? <laughs> You're sharing a story can of yours. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite because it's a great story, right? Do you mind? Which one is it? I'll tell you which one. One from CyberShield, Kingping. <laughs> yes. All right. That's how I learned how the lab. memory works in cron tech or cron jobs work. Yeah. By all means. Oh, yeah. So this was great because I remember when I started my first cybersecurity position and the first question was, do you know Linux? And I was like, I know of Linux. And they're like, well, good, because you're going to be using Linux for every tool we use. And I'm like, okay. So it was like a fire hose. How does Linux work? What, how can I do things from the you know command line and terminal and things like that? And I learned to love Linux after that whole process, even though like at first it was like hitting a wall. Well, we went to CyberShield, did the exercise, and we knew, and this is when I was acting as a defender, not so much as like working with the exercise as far as running it. And we knew that there's a potential based on the threat that they would try to take down the company's website. And so we kind of theorized in our, in our younger days, that, well, if the website goes down, we want to know about it. So one of the ways we can check without just staring at the website and constantly refreshing was, well, we're like, hey, can we just ping it? If it, if it drops offline, we'll know that something's happened to it. So we, we, Lee, dips. we were running some dips on it. We captured. Yeah, we were doing some dips too. But, this, <laughs> but what was great about it was, so we like theorized. We're like, Lee, I was like, you do the website. You just got to ping it and set up some sort of cron job. Ping it. Uh, but you know, ping on Windows, it kills itself after four or five pings, right? Ping on Linux, it's indefinite. Does not. So when he cron job taking out ping over these intervals, it just created a new ping process <laughs> continuously. And we had a guy that was looking at network traffic and what was it? It, was, it wasn't like NetMonkey, what was it, the tool? <sighs> Anyways, it visualized based on the volume of traffic, you get these balloons that would show up over endpoints. And he was just like, he went over to the screen, he's like, oh my God, I think we're being attacked. And you saw his balloon just growing, right? <laughs> it was just getting huge. So like, I like can't see anything else. Did? Oh yeah. yeah. And not only that, because we're working in a virtualized environment, we started like saturating all of our network pipes and some of the memory resources on the entire environment. And we're like, oh my God, like we're getting shut down. It was just because of an innocent mistake. Like one little thing, like thinking about ping differently on different OSs and coming up with an idea that may or may not work. And, and you know, so we called them. Go ahead. So we, we nicknamed them uh, King Ping. That was the, the and, you know, great. but the thing was like, like he's never going to forget that. Right. So like, you know, value learning, it was an exercise, nothing that wouldn't impact yeah. anything. Uh, but Did it's like those type of honest mistakes. 
Hmm? Did the website go down? Oh yeah, we could we couldn't get anything on our network. Oh yeah. Until it was, we figured it was out. It was a big thing in this in this <laughs> virtual yeah. range. People were like, we can't do anything. And like the attackers came in, we're like, what's going it's on? Can't do anything. They're like can't attack anything. running anything outside of the scope. Like they're looking around, we're like <laughs> and like he walked away. And like I was like, all right, I'll delete the cron job. I delete the cron job. That's change. Like restart. Hey, we were like manually trying to delete processes and we couldn't get them all deleted fast enough. We're like, all right, just shut the box down. Like reboot hey, the box. Best offense is a good defense, man. Right. <laughs> Try to do that. Defense is a good offense. Whatever. But yeah, that's that's great. Ping ping. That's your new name. That's what I'm calling. Yeah, oh, my favorite. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, we'll make some uh, we'll make some shirts for Black Hat and you'll have it on your back. It'll be cyborg in the front, King Ping on the back. <laughs> I'll get you. So, so I'll talk about one of my embarrassing times, Lee. So you want to, you know, feel the full brunt. So one thing I like to think about before I tell my specific story that comes front of mind is if I look back on any investigation that I've done throughout my time investigating things, my first investigations were all done wrong. Like I've learned so much over time. If I would have gone back and redone some of the things, I would have done them such a better job and done and done things differently, frankly, in a lot of ways. Uh, but uh, the one thing that I remember distinctly, and it was funny because I just got hired as an analyst in a SOC, first time working in a SOC, and we saw this connectivity to a known indicator. So we were functioning on indicators like a lot of people did back, you know, was it 10 years ago? Maybe a little less. And it was like, hey, we have communication to go into this domain or IP. I think it was a domain. And uh, it's clearly bad based on everything I can tell about it. So we were like, them bad things must be talking to it. But when I was Googling this domain, you know how Google auto-suggests things? Well, Google auto-suggested and changed the domain I was researching. Hmm. So it went to the more popular domain. I didn't catch that. So I went through the entire process and blocked said bad domain. And we were still getting all sorts of alerts and things are going on. I'm like, I blocked it, you know, and it got to the point where the director called me directly and was like, I thought we blocked this domain. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. I put it in the block and I see the tickets closed. Everything should be good. He goes, well, I went to it and said, I'm still up. <laughs> I'm like, why did you go to it? And two, obviously <laughs> what we blocked didn't work. <laughs> Wait, the director is like, I'm going to go to the malicious domain. He was like, I'm going to validate because he didn't have the confidence because we were still getting alerts. He's like, there's no way. So he validated and he was like, no, it's clearly not blocked. And sure enough, it wasn't. And it was because the auto correction, because I like, I was like, how did I miss this? Like I went through all my steps and sure enough, when I typed it into Google, it gave me like the, do you want to search? And I clicked through that quickly and it changed what I was looking for. And I never thought about that that time. Right. Um, so I'll never make that same mistake again. But things like that happen, right? Uh, you know, How much blowback did you get? Well, so that's what was great is I had great leadership at the time. Um, it supported me in general because they knew me personally. I think that's always, always important as a leader to know your people personally. Um, so they knew that, you know, I wasn't trying, I wasn't a lazy person. I wasn't trying to do the wrong thing. I wasn't trying to rush anything. I just made a mistake. And it was a, it was a, it was a, honest conversation you know i had to get with my director and my manager on the same call and just like hey i know you didn't do this on purpose we got to be more careful in the future you know kind of this like let's have an honest talk and totally i appreciated their approach because i, I know i needed to hear when i make a mistake because it's good to hear it uh, they didn't blow it out of proportion it was like 
the first time I made a mistake, I think, as I started on that job. So it wasn't like, a, hey, you have this history of just screwing up all the time. Um, but it also made me feel like, well, shoot, now I got a short rope. I got to be really good for the next so much time before I make another mistake. Uh, so that was something that stood out to me as far as mistakes go. But yeah, I, I mean, gotta, like, I don't know. Go ahead. You got a mistake? I want to hear about it. Yeah, mine's from a different kind of perspective. Uh, no. <laughs> so what I was going to ask you is, again, our background's a little bit different. Y'all are prior, prior military. Right. Mistakes happen. You have to learn from them very quickly, especially with, you know, y'all's background and what y'all did. But there was grace, got a little bit of grace to make those mistakes, you know, to screw up maybe oh, once, yeah. but not That's twice, important. but not three times. But don't make the same have, mistake. Exactly. Learn from that mistake. Yeah. If you make another one, learn from that mistake. But make sure it's three, different. <laughs> yeah, make sure it's different. Always make a different mistake. But right. I think you know, having a higher level conversation about leadership, it's really important to let people have a little bit of lee leeway into making those mistakes. Lee, I have a question for you real quick. And your mistakes that you made, did it lead to a loss in revenue or dollars or downtime or you know was it tied to a service or a product or you know was there a higher level implication for what you did so the ping ruined that whole what eight hours of training that we did but the sysmon yeah, that's the great sysmon, I, sorry holy what what i think you you, so, and, you and roger blocked a lot of that i didn't hear a lot of the knowledge that came no from. so it was thing was is because it was a, a bug that only affected an old operating system we probably shouldn't have been using at the time. Um, it was kind of like a, hey, this sucked. This doesn't really fall. And we defended leave because it was like, you know, if we're going to deploy things out, we should test them appropriately, right? And there was no true evidence that it was tested on that specific type of old operating system and so forth. So you know, as far as responsibility falling on Lee, now Lee was doing what he was supposed to be doing. I had this really good idea. I'm doing all this testing. I've tested it in, in waves about it, how we want to configure things. And now we're ready to deploy. I couldn't ask more from what Lee was doing from that approach. And when things kind of went south, that happened. Luckily, uh, remember I was actually on night, I was covering a night shift. So I was one of the guys running around at every single computer, you know, like help desk and like, all right, let's shut this service down so we can bring this back up, that kind of thing. So I was I was able to be part of the solution, which I think helped. Right? Yeah. When you when you're a security person that makes a mistake, if you can be part of the solution, it's always really good. Don't be like, oh, that sucks. Well, let me know when that's resolved. Like you should be actively engaged, hopefully. Uh, but uh, but culturally, that that affects things, right? If if the mistake is is big enough, that's where you start running into the hey, security wants to do this new thing. And it's like, oh, well, expect a lot more ramp up time to then exercise next new thing. That's yeah. the only thing that I feel like impact really happens. I don't think it, it ever really falls on individual. I made mistakes and luckily other than just a, a conversation, maybe there's harsh words if, you know, depending on who your leadership is, but uh, it shouldn't really imp impact more than anything else. So, you know. Yeah. You know, I was having a conversation with somebody last night. Um, we we're talking about from my baseball background, right? So like I fail seven times out of 10, I had a good year, right? Uh, every 10 at-bats, if I failed seven times, I'm doing really good. But there was some grace in failing and learning from those, I guess not mistakes, but failures. But there are good mistakes and there's bad mistakes. There are mistakes that you make. You're being aggressive and going about your job. You might like trying. extend a little bit. The bad mistakes are if you're lazy and you're not 
you know, you're not going about the things that you should be going about. Like you're not doing the things you should. Those are kind of the bad mistakes, right? And so again, having that grace and leeway for those good mistakes to allow you to learn from those is important in careers of analysts and engineers and leaders as well, right? You need to learn how to to talk to the team and allow them to make those kind of aggressive good mistakes. So I was going to say, I've got a, a, a story to tell as far as poor planning and mistakes that I've had to work through. And it was not so much security, but like IT specific. Mm-hmm. And it was a military-based thing, if, if you want to hear it. Yeah. But I remember when, all right, I'm jumping in. <laughs> so I may have told you the story before. I don't know. I don't know who I tell the story, but this is a story I actually bring up a lot because it really grounded me as far as like, you know, when you, you start getting that bigger head and you make decisions and you realize you're wrong, it's like really good to like get that not as smart as as good as I think I am. It's kind of a good place to be. Uh, in this case, I remember being overseas. I was responsible for networking, right? And the way our shop worked overseas was if we lose communications, you could potentially lose life, right? Because you're actively taking away resources that enable people to do their job. Uh, so there's a big cost involved. And I remember thinking, hey, I'm going to get ahead of the game because in a router that we were using overseas because everything's full of dust, dirt, and whatever, I could hear fans and things going bad. I could audibly know there's something wrong. And I'm like, I'm going to put in like, hey, we're going to do a service on this. We're going to take this offline. We're gonna, we have new device we can put in place should be easy breezy so i'm like yeah it should be like 15 minutes tops you know i had this whole planned out and i had like these contingency plans but i also had this like savvy thing that i thought was going to work and in these the specific router model there are modules you put in and there's two different types of modules one had their own independent cpu and one didn't well if you didn't have if you had the module without the independent cpu it would rely on the config of the entire router if you had the one that had its own CPU, then you had to figure out how to get into that to configure it separately when you first, and I was, and I didn't know any of this. So I just went down, did the whole whole thing and nothing was coming up. And the only type of resource I had was an antenna that went basically dial-up speeds to a satellite. So like double the speeds of dial-up to try to make the right Google searches to figure out how to fix this problem <laughs> when you only have a small window of time to fix this problem. Just- and I was so grateful. What's that? Just sweating, like nervous. Oh, I'm sure as well, I mean, I was sitting there thinking like, I was more worried now that it's like, well, if I put the old one back online, is it going to come up? Like, are we really isolated in the middle of nowhere with no way to talk to people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a great leader at the time who was just like fighting off all the upper man, upper leads, you know, whatever you want to call them. You'd always check in like, how are things going? I'm like, we're working. He's like, all right, I just need to be able to look like I'm coming back and forth so they think that I'm doing something. I'm like, perfect, just keep that up and I'll do the best I can. Um, We got it back online. Yeah, we got it back online and very humbling to say, you know, because I went into something with a plan, I thought I knew exactly how everything was going to work. I didn't really stress over what are, really think through all the things that could go wrong. So I kind of set myself up a little bit, some of the stuff I couldn't have predicted, Um, but it was a pretty big mistake. And the one thing I did was I was in it, just didn't panic and just work through it. You know, I think that's what most people at least should be expected to do. How would you kind of categorize that as a mistake though? Was that poor in the planning or the execution, or it was just something that like, you didn't know what you didn't know in that situation about that? So yeah, some of it was ignorance, right? But I feel like how big the cybersecurity field is, you'll find yourself in that boat a lot. 
right? You don't know what you don't know. And all of a sudden you saddle yourself with, well, shoot, now I'm in something. People are going to ask questions about this specific thing. And I'm thinking the same thing. Like, what the hell is that? Right. <laughs> so, and I feel like thing is, is best response I've ever learned. And, and Mike, I hope you don't take away from this. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about when I give you this answer. But if someone asks me a question, I don't know. My response is, I don't know. It's, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. I'll look into it. Right. Basically saying like, I can't expect me to know everything, but just because I don't know doesn't mean I don't care. Right? So the moral of the story is have a good connection to Google, right? Like, <laughs> Chat GPT right. now, right? That's so true. I mean, <laughs> my career is, is hinging on my ability to look things up and translate that into what I need to do yeah. and troubleshoot and translate, right? So again, all of us, I mean, no matter how many SANS classes you take, how many certifications, Security Plus, CSSP, you could take every single course available in SANS and you would still run into a situation that you don't know how to operate it. And that's when you need to take all of that skill or knowledge and translate it and maybe look it up. So to know every single internet protocol or you know encryption methodology or you know hypothesis for hunting is impossible, right? It's all about so, understanding. I will, I will be honest. I've run into people that can recite those specifics incredibly well, but they lack the ability to think. I would yep. much rather have the ability to think than be able to recite things verbatim from just a lexicon of stuff. ChatGPT. Application stuff. Application stuff. How to apply it. Right. So I guess I mean, we have 10 minutes left. I didn't talk about any mistakes that I've made. So you can just cut off the, the podcast now. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I, I've I've come from a I've had a lot of product experience, right? So I worked at a managed service provider, I worked at a SOAR product, and then now starting Cyborg and building a product, right? So a lot of my experience on mistakes have direct implications to revenue and customers and uptime and SLAs, and that is terrifying. Right? Yeah. So. Uh, when, I mean, I cut my teeth in cyber at that managed service provider. It was myself and two other individuals that managed basically the the service, the engineering, the infrastructure, SLAs on uptime on the VPNs, like literally everything associated with what we did. It was myself and two other people. And then luckily we hired a couple of people later on, but we had two deployed products on customer sites. We had VPNs. We had the whole service you know, process. So every time I did something, I had, it felt stress to the company on my back, which sucks, right? I remember on one of those products we deployed, I was running an update and I wiped the product. And I was like, I felt my heart drop to the floor, my gut wrenched, I'm like, oh crap. Like, what do I do, right? And this is kind of customer data on what we were doing and no real way to back it up because it was on their environment. And we weren't taking daily or weekly backups because the data was just too much to try to back up, right? Like network data. And so in that moment, again, I had great leadership, my manager, the team around me. We figured out a way to at least get them back up and figured out a way to kind of communicate what was lost, what wasn't lost, and essentially how to recover moving forward, right? So I had, in that mistake, I had direct impact because the contract got a turn for SLAs. It could have been a direct loss of revenue. Uh, anytime you're in those situations, like 
outside of the security posture of the oh so we also had to control the security posture of the org too right so like yeah. every thing that could go wrong was on our plates and so having the ability to make that mistake and work through it was huge for me because i realized that like one that changed my standard operating procedure we built framework and process and policy around those things that we made mistakes on. So we learned from them and it never happened again, but being able to navigate those mistakes to, uh, to make sure that we, you know, controlled the fallout is really important. And that's where the management comes in. Scott, to your story about yeah. that leadership kind of having your back, right? Like taking that fire so you can go do the thing you need to do to recover is huge. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. And so even now, you know, at Cyborg, SLAs are important, you know, the revenue, protecting the org, like it's still, mistakes can't happen, but if they do, you should have kind of that plan B, C, D of how to recover. Right, right. Move forward. So, yeah, that's my story. I won't go into specifics, but that's just the one. <laughs> I've been lucky that every mistake that I've made normally doesn't, uh, doesn't have anything to do with life loss or loss of life limb eyesight or um money right i did run a rm-f star on a computer once just to see what happened <laughs> it was it was uh, at a production server so it was fun to, to see it blow up test right yeah exactly exactly never test a prod environment mm. sorry that's my post always have a non-prod environment because some orgs only have prod so you know. Yeah, some, some orgs dev environment mimics prod too much to the point where they're actually using those resources in prod and you can't test on, which is always an awkward circumstance to be in. Man, yeah, I've heard horror stories about, especially like yeah. production database, large data that you can't replicate, yeah. so kind of like attached to it. Yeah, not good. Anyway, yeah. lessons learned across the board, right? I think the... Yeah, so the, I was going to say we're kind of... You guys got some closing comments we're kind of coming up to uh outro here so that we can uh close this one out so if you guys have anything else go ahead and say it and then we'll, i'll kick off the outro i uh i thoroughly enjoy these conversations i think it's really interesting to talk about kind of everything else we deal with from a you know security standpoint right because there's there's conversation about the technical side conversation about you know how we do our day-to-day -day, but there's always these underlying things that people in our industry deal with that it's really cool to kind of yeah. talk about and explore. So again, always, I a, think we get down to the people job. part, right? right? Like we get down to the people, we, we definitely cover some technical stuff, but there's, there's some underlying people things that I don't think people talk about enough. Hopefully people listening find value there. I mean, it's great for me to like kind of unload on you guys, right. as far as things I think about on a routine basis and right. hopefully, I'm, and, and we should honestly, so, a shout out to Jay. I'm gonna keep saying it that way because underscores. But we really should really acknowledge the people that chat the most with us on Discord. I really appreciate the uh, comments and questions there as well. That's awesome. Don't be shy. We trust me. We just talk about our mistakes. We'll talk about our failures. There's nothing you can say that we won't that we're not we're not gonna be rude or mean about. Right. So uh, Lee, Lee had a whole therapy session today, so it's great. Feel a lot better. Yeah. I hope my <laughs> access works tomorrow. I'll say that. <laughs> no, I if, you off, man. I you off. if you can learn from our mistakes from here, I mean, more power to you. I mean, like, yeah, sometimes you need to learn from your own mistakes, but like Mike said, don't make the same mistake twice. And we gave yeah. you some very good examples. <laughs>
Ping, ping, <laughs> ping, ping. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Larry. All right, so before we go, I want to mention some good discussions that will be coming up. We have the threat hunting workshop with Lee, hunting for lateral movement. So you guessed it, another hands-on using tools and real data to hunt for different lateral movement techniques. Uh, receive a lot of good, they, these workshops have gotten a lot of good feedback. They're kind of like CTF challenges. So uh, definitely look for those, register and start setting up and you can earn your level one badge for lateral movement. We also have a talk, hybrid hunting, threat hunting in a managed security battle space. So I'll be working with uh, Justin Hurd from Newspire talking about hybrid hunting and some unique advantages that come with that approach. And you hear some real world ex experiences and things. So it'll be a fun conversation. And then you'll get to hear from me again if you want for a top cover threat hunting management workshop for from KPIs to metrics. Um, we'll be talking about things to be thinking about when running, um, you know, a hunt hunting operation as far as you know what you do, what you look at, how do you measure. You know, to think about so join that but with that thanks everyone for joining once again love talking shop with friends and colleagues uh, if you like what you hear check us out on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever else you listen to your podcast and leave a good review so others can you know discover us as well and join the conversation we really like the interactive parts of the conversation so feel free if you just your first time hearing and you're, and you're a little shy next time jump right in please uh, and then if you're outside the live podcast, we have our brief 30 to 45 minute. They've kind of been going a little longer because we talk a lot, as you can tell. But we'll hit on five breaking news topics and really try to tie in technical things associated with, you know, intelligence reports, technical writers from others, news topics that are breaking. And you'll, you'll see that about every Wednesday. So check those out as well. So with that, happy hunting. Yeah. Take, Take care, care, guys. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.